You're listening to Sermons by the Park, a weekly podcast sharing the Word of God as it is proclaimed from the pulpit of Union Congregational Church in East Walpole, Massachusetts. Our current sermon series is called In the Beginning, a three-part exploration of the foundational experiences in the life of faith drawn from scriptures found in the book of Genesis. Here's this week's message. First scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 through 22. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted, corrupted its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence. Because of them, now I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its width, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and put the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For my part, I am going to bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh, which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every kind shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every kind of food that is eaten and store it up, and it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word. Our second scripture reading continues in the story uh, in Genesis 7. Let's continue to listen for God's word for us here today. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters swelled and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters swelled so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters swelled above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, domestic animals, wild animals, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all human beings, everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Human beings and animals and creeping things and birds of the air, they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. The water swelled on the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah 
and all the wild animals and all the domestic animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rains from the heavens were restrained, and the waters gradually receded from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to abate until the 10th month, and in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains appeared again. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent out the raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent out the dove from him to see if the waters had subsided. But the dove found no place to set its foot, and so it returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took it and brought it into the ark with him. He waited another seven days and again sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent out the dove, but it did not return to him anymore. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you join me now in a moment of prayer? Let us pray. As your spirit brooded over the waters of creation, O God, come now and brood over us. As you were present over the waters of the flood, O God, come now and be present to us. As you have promised to seek out the lost and bring peace to the fearful, come, O Redeemer, and seek us out. Bring us your peace by the power of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, over the past two weeks, we have been considering the foundational experiences of faith, the experiences that give meaning to that word, faith. Faith is nurtured in the rich soil of God's orderly creation. We look out at creation, we see the majesty and wonder of God's hand, the synthesis of chaotic matter together with eternal spirit. But faith is also watered by the tears shed in calamity, for we come to know God most acutely in moments of distress and fear and loss. But ultimately, ultimately, faith comes to its fullest flower in a third kind of experience, which is the experience of redemption and rejuvenation, of coming out of the valley onto the wide and gentle plain, of weathering the storm and coming to rest on the dry land again. But as I noted last week, it is typically that second experience, the experience of crisis and, and disorder. That is where we most acutely encounter God, either as a comforting presence, but more often as an absence. We encounter God's deafening silence and we are left to wonder why why are you doing this to me, O oh God? Why are you doing this to the world? Why is, it that, why is it that we must suffer so? 
And to that I would ask, why is it that we so often have to experience a crisis to find God? Or perhaps for God to find us? The story of Noah and the flood is about precisely this question. It is a story of crisis. A crisis in which God intends to wipe away all flesh from the earth. And as we heard, God did what God intended to do. Every living thing, everything that had the breath of life in its nostrils on the land died. Except, of course, for Noah and his ark full of family and friends and their non-human friends. And we do not need... uh, um, a great leap of imagination to imagine this devastation. We had the experience just this week of Hurricane Ian, the leftovers of which we are experiencing now outside our very windows, that crossed uh, the peninsula there in Florida. It, it wrecked boats in Fort Myers. It tore up the pier in Naples. It caused the streets of Orlando to turn into rivers. We have these images in our mind of great floods, and we can envision the waters rising. Only a hurricane goes by in a day. This is 40 days of hurricanes, and then 150 days of flooding afterwards. That's the level of devastation we're talking about. That is the level of crisis in this story. And it's hard to imagine what hope there would be In the midst of that, in the midst of this story about the very end of the world, where is the hope for redemption and rejuvenation in what appears to just be disorder and chaos and destruction? Well, one place we can find hope, perhaps, is to focus in on the person that the story is built around, on Noah himself. Noah is the one righteous person that God picks out of all the descendants of Adam and Eve Noah's the one who heeds God's commands. And what do we see Noah do in this moment of crisis? Noah gets to work. Noah is a handyman. He knows it's time to put wood and hammers together and make something happen. And thankfully, again, this is an orderly God, and so we get the dimensions of this boat hammered out for us. As the old line from the Shawshank Redemption goes, you got to get busy living or get busy dying, and Noah gets busy living. But the rabbi Daniel Rutenberg, in a commentary on the story, points out to us that Noah has not always been seen as just a heroic, get-things-done kind of fellow. He is, of course, blameless in his own generation. That's what the text says. But remember... This is a generation of lawlessness and corruption. In other words, he's the best of the worst. He was not a perfect man. Indeed, his faith is never reckoned to him as righteousness, as Genesis will later say about, say, his descendant Abraham. And perhaps that's because at the end of the world, instead of... uh, Instead of speaking against God's intentions, Noah was silent. Noah put his head down and he got to work. Abraham, by contrast, while he was obedient to God's commands and is held up for that, famously was willing to talk back to God. At one point in the story of Abraham, 
God tells him that he is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, those famous cities of iniquity. They certainly had it coming. But Abraham raised the question, God, if there are 50 people in that city who are righteous, will you still destroy the city? And God pauses for a moment and then says, no, I won't destroy the city if you can find me 50 righteous people. And then Abraham keeps bargaining. He says, what about 10? What about one? And God says, no, I will not destroy the city if I can find one righteous person. Abraham was willing to confront God with a question. And I think that takes the wind out of the sails that God is just some irrational, petulant creator who who just visits destructions on human beings without regard for their lives. It shows that God is reasonable and that we human beings, we have a role to play. We have a part to play in the reorientation of God's relation to the world from one of destruction to one of redemption. We, of course, cannot compel God to be merciful, but we do have the right and indeed the obligation to pray for the redemption of the world. And so here we have Noah, this imperfect vessel, captaining uh, 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 an imperfect ark, cobbled together in a hurried fashion at the last moment. And together... Noah and his ark and all those gathered in it, they bear the possibility of new life. It says twice that the ark sits upon the face of the deep, hovers over the face of the waters, just as God's spirit hovered over creation. And they stayed there for a long, long time. And you got to wonder, what were they thinking that whole time? What were they saying to one another the whole time? Probably something along the lines of, I wonder when the rain's going to stop. How were they able to withstand the storm? I I was thinking about this as I was walking to church today. Uh, I typically walk through Bird Park, and I I was heading my usual way, and I stepped out into the fields, and as I did, I was immediately hit by one of these gusts of wind. And then I saw a rather sizable tree branch go floating by on the wind across the field. And I said to myself, you know, I think I'll avoid this field, this open space here today. And I took a left and I headed for the forest um, and walked through the forest. And immediately, 10 steps into that trail, the wind died down. And I looked up, and you could still see the tops of the trees shaking. You knew the wind was still there, but down below, I couldn't feel it. And of course, this is because all of those trees together provide a break from the wind. Indeed, forests are resilient against storms like this precisely because the trees are all next to one another, leaning on one another, underneath the ground where we can't even see it. Their roots come together and hold to each other. A forest is resilient in a storm. A singular tree, much less so. And so I think it's worth remembering that the way that the Noah and his family and all these creatures of creation weathered the storm is that they were gathered together, holding on to each other, leaning on to each other. That in that ark, 
they were safe together. And, and I think you need no better metaphor than being together in this sanctuary as the winds buffet us outside to realize that the church is like this too. It is a, a forest, a shelter, an ark in the midst of a chaotic world. And for generations, churches have endured all sorts of crises in the world, persecutions and plagues and pandemics, things that foretold the ending of all life. But churches have also endured just people being people, which is, after all, what prompted God to to go about destroying and cleansing all things. But today, churches face a different kind of crisis. We face a crisis of decline. These are the words of uh, pastoral theologian Andrew Root, someone whose work I I admire. He writes about the crisis of decline the churches face. It is a crisis of decline in numbers, of decline in resources, of decline in vitality and influence and cultural relevance. All of this declining in churches today. During the pandemic, Root wrote a book called Churches and the Crisis of Decline. And in it, he tells the story of a church uh, called St. John the Baptist Lutheran Church. And I'd like to share some of what he writes about that church. He says, St. John the Baptist, um, it's a church that in the early 2000s sought renewal and rejuvenation by bringing in a charismatic new leader named Pastor Luke. And uh, when Pastor Luke came to the church in the early 2000s, he treated this congregation as though it were a church plant. He switched up the worship styles. He, he brought in contemporary worship songs. He marketed the Sunday worship service as Thrive. He didn't want to call it worship. He said it was thriving. And he worked hard. He worked hard to connect to the young people that were moving and the young families moving into the neighborhood around this church. And... And his goal, and the goal of everyone there who was supporting these efforts, was to return the church to its golden age. You know the golden age, when the Sunday school classrooms were full, when the budget was never an issue, when everyone who was anyone went to church. The golden age. But then, Pastor Luke left. He moved across town to a, to a megachurch that was more relevant, more influential. And many of St. John the Baptist's members went with him. But those who remained were left with this question. What do we do now? What comes next? And you would think that would be the moment of crisis. Because here was a choice. Some wanted to, to find another pastor, Luke, to seek out that relevance, that youth and vitality, to get back and continue on the momentum towards that golden age. Others, others wanted to just have things go back to normal. That all these changes had alienated so many. There was tension and there was gridlock. And time and money and energy were dwindled away in this church by all that conflict. And then an elderly woman named Jean passed away. She'd been a member of the church her whole life. She had paid for one of the stained glass windows in the church to memorialize her husband who passed away in World War II. After her funeral services, one of the deacons of the church saw her grandson 
standing by the stained glass window with tears in his eyes. And his name, whatever his normal name was, uh, uh, it doesn't say, but was is his nickname. That's how he preferred to be addressed, was. He had been his grandmother's caretaker, this young man in his, in his early 30s. But he never set foot in that church until that day, despite the fact that his grandmother had been going her whole life. Was had had issues with drugs and alcohol in his adolescence and his young adulthood. He was the only one, the only person who would take him in after all of that trouble he had gotten into was his grandma, was his grandma Jean. And in turn, he had really turned his life around. He had been taking care of her, and in turn, he had stayed sober so he could do that work of care. But now she was gone, and as Bert the deacon approached him, to ask what he could do to help this young man who was grieving. Woes asked him, can you help me find God? It turns out that before she had died, Grandma Jean had left Woes with only two pieces of advice. Take care of your teeth and find God. Equally important. Bert didn't really know what to say to this, but he did tell Woes that the church had a Bible study on Wednesday nights and that his grandma Jean had been a beloved member of that group. And much to Bert's surprise, the very next Wednesday, who walks into Bible study? Was. He says, my grandma told me to find God. You all know how to do that, right? And here, here, not when Pastor Luke left, not when the search committee began its deliberations, not even when Grandma Jean died, not when the church coffers began to run dry. Here, this moment, that question, that is the real crisis for St. John the Baptist. You know how to find God, right? And one of the members of the Bible study, taking very seriously this question, answered, do we? Perhaps it is the most honest response we could have to that question. Do we really know how to find God today? But now this little church had a new mission. They were going to help this young man find God. They were going to figure it out. And it was more than that, too. It was a reminder that they needed help to figure out how to find God. And the key to this was not some checklist of tasks. It was not about getting busy doing something or bringing in some perfect charismatic pastor who was going to somehow save the day. No, the key to weathering this particular crisis was to come together as a community, to remain together and seek God together. But the most important thing they realized the most important thing that this story of Noah and the ark teaches us is that it's not us who finds God. It is God who finds us. God remembered Noah, it says. God remembered Noah and the people with him and the animals with him in the ark. God remembered them, and then the waters began to abate. Jesus said that he came to seek the lost. 
that indeed Jesus would leave 99% of the world that was doing just fine to go out and find that 1% that had been left adrift. And so in this moment of crisis, we have to remember that it is God who finds us. Last week at the installation service, Reverend Amy Fowler was preaching, and she reminded us that ministry, the work of ministry, does not begin with the coffee-making or filling the offering plate or even the work of mission. Ministry begins with the stopping and the looking, she said. In other words, ministry begins waiting for God to find us because God's promise always is that all things are being made new and that God will indeed remember us. God will find us. But we have to wait for it. I said um, over the last couple weeks that this sermon series was inspired in part by Howard Thurman, um, the great theologian of the 20th century, and and his thoughts on God's order and the encounter with God. Uh, This third sermon and that notion of waiting is inspired not by the content of Thurman's work, but by the style of it. Uh, The Pitts Theological Library at Emory University, which is my alma mater, has a collection of recordings of Thurman's speeches. And uh, I thought to myself one day, oh, it would be so great to listen to these sermons and speeches. And so I turned one on. And the first five minutes are his opening prayer. Howard Thurman spoke in the most deliberate, thoughtful manner I have ever heard. And you have to wait for it when you're listening to him. I had been reading the transcripts of these sermons and lectures for a long time, really digesting the ideas, but there's something about the way he speaks where you can tell he is waiting. He is waiting for God to give him inspiration. And so so I am inspired that in this world where we are constantly told to push on, to do the next thing, to rush ahead, that this crisis, this moment, perhaps calls for us to wait. And yes, we hunger after God. We hunger to get beyond the crisis, but we are powerless to move beyond it unless God comes to lead us out. But the good news, friends, is that when we stop and we wait, God finds us. Here in the ark of the church, God finds us here at the table. Christ comes to meet us in the breaking of the bread and the pouring of the cup. The assurance that God is with us. And that story about that church, Andrew Root made that up. It's what he calls an alternative history. Because the church that he had in mind that he renamed St. John the Baptist, it closed. It turned into a brewery, which is not the worst afterlife for a church, in my opinion. But perhaps it was a premature death for a church that still had some life in it. 
And even if St. John the Baptist's redemption story, the story of waiting and finding God together, isn't real, even if God's story or the story of, of, of the flood overtopping the mountains, even if that is a work of fiction, the real story that God is with us, that God will find us in the midst of crisis, that story is true. That is the source of our faith If we are willing to stop and wait and taste and see, these stories teach us that God will surely come and find us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for listening. To learn more about our church and our life together as a community of faith, you can visit churchbythepark.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at Church by the Park. We gather for worship on Sundays at 10.15 a.m., both in the sanctuary on Rhodes Avenue next to Bird Park in East Walpole, and online via live stream at facebook.com slash churchbythepark. Now until next time, may the peace of Christ abide with you.